Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top, the body positive, sex positive show with your host Jenny Lynn and Auntie Vice. This show contains explicit language, not suitable for most minors or easily offended majors. It contains opinionated discussion about politics, race, sex, fat folks, gender, which may not be suitable for conservatives. Additionally, some shows may contain references to science, statistics, history, research, mathematics, and reality, which may not be suitable for American evangelicals. Hi, and welcome to episode of six of Fat Chicks on Top. This is your co-host, Auntie Vice, and I'm here with my sexy co-host, Jenny Lynn. Hello. Hi, Jenny. It's so good to have you back. It's so good to be back. I am back, but I'm sick, and it's stupid, and I want to talk about my health. (laughs) So, on today's show, um, we're, we're talking about health again, because health comes up a lot when you're fat. Yeah. This is happening. It, it it does. And we have some very cool guests on today's show. We have Kelly Dunham, who is a former nun, turned RN, who focuses on genderqueer health and access, and she does stand-up comedy. This is an amazing person all around. They are absolutely incredible. And then we have a great local resource. We've got Heather Beth Woodford. Love I love Heather Beth. She's so fantastic. She runs Sex Positive Sacramento. She's the sex positive social worker. And she is all things about vulvas everywhere. Yeah. I mean, even on her clothing, right? I guess. I'm going to have to post some links of her dress. It's so cute. It's amazing. Um, So I guess what I want to start with today. Well, you're sick. I'm sick. I'm sick and I'm tired. And like the thought of going to my doctor and then just telling me, oh, you don't need drugs. You don't need anything. Just deal with it. It will go away is frustrating. And so I'm just not going to go. I'm here. I'm doing this because this is more important and the world is still spinning. And if I die, whatever. Well, and I think that comes up a lot for for bigger people because fat phobia is a huge issue in the medical profession. Yeah. Um, most of us who are bigger, or once we got bigger, have had the experience of you go to the doctor, you could give them your severed arm, and what would they say? Oh, don't worry. You're going to be fine. It will reattach itself. If you lose weight. <laughs> Everything will be... So- your stubbed toe, your aching joints, your cancer, your depression... Mm-hmm is all tied to the size of your weight if you go to a doctor. Yeah, that's true. So when you go to your doctors, what do you have to do to get attention? Um, I found after years of trying, the only symptom they really care about is a newly attached malpractice attorney. Oh my goodness. How does that work? (laughs) (laughs) When you start with your first symptom, uh, well, well, what brings you in today? Well, I'm just documenting this for my malpractice attorney. All of a sudden, the symptoms that were completely meaningless for five years, but killing you, matter. So are you going to start taking your lawyer with you to your doctor's appointments? (laughs) No, but I do have his name, and I've kind of figured out if you can say, hi, I can afford white dick, they care. Wow. That's a big statement. I I mean, I guess. I'm not getting the help. When I was pregnant, Mm -hmm. I was considered obese, too, when Mm -hmm. I got pregnant. Um, you know, and there's these different levels of obesity. Like right. you, you start it, you're overweight, mm-hmm. you're obese one, then obese two, and it's all based on your your BMI, your body mass index, mm-hmm. and whoever makes that up, mm-hmm. right? I, which I think is crap. I feel height, weight proportionate. Like I I feel healthy and good mm-hmm. in my body, but 
the the doctor let me know okay so you're pregnant mm-hmm. you already are at a weight that you should be full term like she said this in our mm-hmm. first meeting and she was larger than me mm-hmm. and did not kid glove me and was mm-hmm. like this is going to be a horrible pregnancy for you because your weight mm-hmm. and i just thought oh my god i was so paranoid mm-hmm. she made me almost an anorexic pregnant woman mm-hmm. like i didn't want to eat i mm-hmm. couldn't i felt bad about myself going into it and i had a lot of health problems when i was pregnant like mm-hmm. my gallbladder like just just everything i felt horrible and i personally internalized that as a weight issue mm-hmm. um and i fought for eight months while i was pregnant for them to really look into my body like investigate what was going on and it turns out after you know mris and sonogram and all of these things you know when she looks at my body and she's like oh well you you do have gallbladder problems and you're not digesting and you should be on a very specific diet and da 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 and and i was like well gallbladder problems what does that mean so they send me off to radiology all the things and the the radiologist is like oh and I was like, what does oh mean? Right. I can't tell you I'm just a radiologist. Well, can I see your picture? She, she turns the screen and I see where my gallbladder is. And it shouldn't be as speckled white as it is. Right. And she's like, well, I'm writing that we see something. And I was like, what are you writing that you see? She says, numerous <laughs> gallstones. And so, yeah, it was... I had to go on a special diet, change my life while mm-hmm. I was pregnant, just so I didn't lose my baby. And that wasn't weight related. That mm-hmm. had nothing to do with my weight at all. That is just something that happens naturally with your body when you're pregnant. And I've I've never trusted my my medical professional, my OB, after giving me that information and denying me, you know, seeing a doctor going forward. And I think that comes up for so many bigger people is once you experience that type of discrimination over and over again, um, it becomes very hard to want to go in, to trust them, to think you're ever going to get help. Uh, You know, and it's, it limits fat people's access. We have up on our site under the resources board, a number of articles showing that the fat phobia in the medical profession consistently leads to missed diagnosis and misdiagnosis for bigger people because we're consistently told all it is is your weight. The other way weight comes up in health is it's a backhanded way to criticize people. Definitely. Right. You, especially on social media, you'll throw up a picture and they'll say, well, I'm just concerned about your health. I, I don't want you to say you're pretty. I don't want to, you're you're not attractive. But my concern is your health. And um, recently, Tess Holiday, who is a large, you know, plus size model, um, wrote an article for Self Magazine, and we'll we'll have the link up. And it, her whole thing is, my health is not your goddamn issue mm-hmm. because it's never really about our health. It's a way for you to insult us and criticize us. Is how people come out about it. Um. I mean, if they were truly concerned about health, these would be the same people who would be talking about health access, access to nutrition, food access, all of that. And it's never what comes up. Ever. Uh, So how do you go about, like you said, you're skipping the doctor on this. How do you 
go about taking care of yourself and your health? Is have you found a way? Have you found providers that you can work with? Are there any? Is there anybody you trust in the medical profession? I don't keep a regular primary doctor. I I don't like to go on regular checkups. I hate going to the OB. The dentist sends me into panic attacks and they won't prescribe me Valium or an Ativan to get through that. And so I I am flailing. I'm I'm just flailing with my health and I'm trying to work out and and get my mental health in order just to manage but when little things come up or i'm sick like this i just muscle through like i get up every day and i muscle through i'm lucky to have a supportive partner that you know when i ran out of medication he was like oh i'm getting up to go do this and get this and And he just went and did it for me and because i wasn't gonna get up and do it I'm I'm glued to the bed sometimes and I can't get out of bed. I how do you get out of bed when you feel sick? <laughs> what do On you do? On my knees. Uh, yeah. It's a position I'm comfortable with. <laughs> Twice a day and say thank you Jesus. <coughs> I love it. But yeah, how are you managing to like navigate your day, get out of bed? So for me, those? my biggest health challenge for the longest time was dealing with bipolar disorder. It's, I figured out I had, I changed my undergraduate major to figure out I had it because I knew something was going on. I was incredibly suicidal. I had a suicide attempt. Um, I was seeing things. I had 24 little brown and green frogs that walked around at my feet that I worried about stepping on and they told me what to do. Um, So I knew this wasn't normal. Like I knew other people didn't have frogs telling them what to do. I was at least self-aware enough to know that the Warner brother pops up. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. It's all very Disney-esque, which is very not me. I mean, I think that was the first tip off is this is too cute to be me normally. Uh, And so I, I tried. I tried to get help. I went to a psychologist and she said my problem was I was bisexual and that was not a real thing and sent me to my own coming out group. Gave me my own home phone number. So if that was not a universe saying heal thyself. Yeah. I went to a psychiatrist and he told me I was in a gender inappropriate major. Basically, math is too hard for girls and that's why you're seeing shit. Uh, and we're, we're not talking 1950. Yeah. We're talking 1995. And he said, he literally told me, well, if you switch to an English major or K-12 education, all of this will go away. The fact I haven't gone, John Q., speaks to my own self-control right so you know i spent a long time trying to figure out how to work with it i for 20 years i did the traditional um western treatments i took over 50 different um psychotropics in different combinations um with varying degrees of success um but always with awful awful side effects um and i finally got so frustrated with people not listening to me, I sought out a naturopath because I know I respond very well to herbal supplements. Things like, you know, when my my um, LDL and HDL level started rising a little bit as I was getting into my late 30s, I added fish oil to the, my diet and like a fish oil supplement took care of it and it was fine. Right. And I know I respond very well to things like turmeric for pain. 
right? These things tend to work well for me. So I sought out a naturopath here in Sacramento who put me in touch with a doctor who was a traditionally trained psychiatrist who had moved into naturopathy. And I mean, it was incredibly expensive at the time, but really worth coming up with the money to do it because he and I came up with a treatment plan for herbal supplements with a combination of herbal supplements, yoga, uh, diet, it takes a lot longer. Full, full full body spectrum. Right. Can't just treat half. Right. But we came up with a thing over time that allowed me to invest the time. And it takes like an hour, hour and a half a day between meal planning, meditation, yoga, getting the herbalist supplements. But for five years, my bipolar has been largely stable with very few side effects from the treatment. Um, and for me, I'm incredibly grateful that works. I recognize that for some people, Western medications work wonderfully. And I would encourage you to keep doing that if it works for you. For those of us who it didn't work for, like people like me, um, it was worth exploring other alternatives. And as you've managed physical pain, have you ever done acupuncture or like I've tried Reiki, I, like, Reiki works really well mm -hmm. for me. Um, I've done energy healing. Okay. The last time I had lung masses, I had a five and a half centimeter mass in one lung and a three and a half centimeter in the other with pleural effusion. Western medicine couldn't figure it out. And here at UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, when they botched a bronchoscopy, I was told, well, you're lucky we treated you at all. Go home. We don't know what's going on. If you're still here in three months, come back and hopefully you'll have new symptoms and we can go from there. Wow. They've come back. So, but the last time I worked with an energy healer and we worked for three months and she was able to reduce them. And I, it sounds real woo woo. And there's still part of me that's like, yeah, I sound like this crazy chick. And I, I, I sound like one of those white women into crystals, which is what I never wanted to be. <laughs> never wanted to be that woman. Right. But it worked like, <laughs> like, and it does, it makes me feel a little woo woo crazy. Yeah. But the masses were there. Western medicine did nothing. I worked with an energy healer. The masses went away. Like, what about um, copper bracelets? Those type of like, have you done any of those I still have that things? resistance of, I don't want to be that crazy white lady. But I think Western medicine makes you that crazy white lady. <laughs> Because they ignore, and when everything's, well, if you just lost weight and uh, took an antidepressant, you'll be fine. And you're like, I am working my ass off and I'm taking a buttload of antidepressants. Right. And I'm even taking antidepressants up my butt and it's not working. <laughs> Definitely. Right. So like my knee pain and my other pain, mm. the magnets and the copper help me. And mm. I feel like, woo. <laughs> right. Like you don't want to tell other people this works because you're like, I feel like that crazy woo woo crystal chick. And that's not who I want to be. But I it feel works. like I'm taking, you know, Pez candy aspirin as a four year old again. You mm -hmm. know, like, oh, I'm all better. My boo boo is gone. Yay. <gasps> but when you have the physical evidence of it, you're like, Okay. I have to give this a little credence. <laughs> I went down four flights of stairs the other day mm -hmm. and didn't take the elevator because my knees said I could. Right? And I was like, oh, thank you, magnets. <laughs> but I, I do think the bias you come up with against in Western medicine, it drives you to seek these other things. You're like, it's not working for me. And they're not listening to you. And they keep dismissing it. And then when you tell them, yes, I am working out. Yes, I am on the diet. But they're not seeing the results they think they should see. Then they tell you to stop lying. Yeah. So a major thing I had, like all of my medical crap surrounds my pregnancy, having mm -hmm. a baby. 
my hands out of nowhere. They they broke out in this rash, mm-hmm. and I looked like a leper. Mm-hmm. I and I struggled with this for like eight weeks, mm-hmm. and. I kept going back to my medical professional, my doctor, and finally a doctor at urgent care figured it out. They mm-hmm. tried to tell me I had hoof and mouth and like all that that didn't work. I, I, I seemed like I was crazy, but I, I was very in my own self about it and finally got this fun steroid cream to get rid of it. Uh-huh. But during that process, a male doctor told me, well, I want to prescribe you something, but you're nursing. How old's your child? And I said she's 13 months Mm -hmm. and he's like oh okay she's done nursing so why don't you just wean her off now and i'll give you this medicine and i thought wait now you want me to put my child's health and her immune system you want me to compromise her to give me something that you're not even sure about Mm -hmm. that medicine wouldn't have worked that medicine would have never worked i needed this topical situation so i my trust you Mm -hmm. know for standard drugs and ingesting things is just not very high i if i can avoid taking any medication at all mm-hmm. i will like the only natural remedy is some type of strain of cannabis if i'm in pain cbd therapy things like that have been my major helper because i just the other things make me feel more manic as a bipolar person like i i can't cope mm-hmm. with lamectol mm-hmm. i don't i can't do you know yeah lithium combinations with that i i just can't do prozac you know help me out and i don't trust them i i don't i feel like a cocktail and i don't want to feel like a cocktail i want to look like a cocktail well and i think that's a great lead in to to our first guest today who's kelly dunham she writes a lot about how you create a care team um, before you go into the medical profession, how you deal with trust issues with your physicians, how you create a way to get treatment when you have been traumatized by the medical system. So stay with us through the break and we'll be right back with Kelly. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. We are here with Kelly Dunham. Today, I'm on our show about health. She's a nurse. She focuses on health for queer women. She writes for Curve Magazine. She has four books out. She's a stand-up comedian. She's a former nun. The most interesting person I've come across so far on doing the show. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be on. It's great to have you on. I wanted to start today with talking a little bit about some of the work you've done around health and health access. As a queer woman myself and as a fat woman, getting decent health care has been a remarkable struggle. It's one of those things, as we've, we've talked to people on the show in all different facets, getting health care as a bigger person tends to be a real barrier. For somebody who works in the health field as well as uses the health field as a consumer, what are some of the basic things that people can do to help ease that access and find a, a health care team that works for you? Well. Yes. I mean, fat people, it's really hard for fat people to get treatment for anything other than being fat. You know, whatever, uh, go to the ER, you can have an anvil, you know, a, a spear through your head, whatever. Like, then the problem is always fatness, regardless, right? And so it's very hard for folks to get kind of, and, and often if you're willing to say like, oh, I'm in the middle of losing weight or something, then you can get folks to move beyond it and then also address. 
I would say like the beginning start is to try and find providers that have other people have had a good experience with. And you can do that, you know, Facebook groups uh, from friends. That's one of the biggest things. A, a good primary care provider can make a huge difference because that person can open doors for you and help you negotiate with specialists and it can make it can make a huge difference. And I feel like there are people are learning how to kind of communicate with providers. You know, it's it's a different language and a different culture. I don't I don't think that's an accident that healthcare like when you go into the hospital and people are like, Oh, I was so tired just visiting someone in the hospital, it's because it's a, a completely different culture, right? And it has a language of and all that. And so learning some of that language and learning some of that culture can help you get better, better care. And I should also add as a caveat, whenever I talk about medical self-advocacy, I always want to add, and also it is not your fault, not, never the patient's fault if they get bad care. Like that, you know, we talk about advocating for ourselves. Like this is all stuff we shouldn't have to do, but we do have to do it. So, you know, like the finding their roles is one of the, the first things. And the second thing I feel like just the biggest thing is to take somebody with you. And that can be really difficult. And maybe you can't actually physically take somebody with you if you're not in the exam room, but actually, you know, whether it's somebody you're texting with or it's somebody who can actually come with you and at least be in the waiting room, that kind of thing that can help you ask, remember your questions. So like having questions, whether they're on your phone or that kind of thing, showing up for the appointment with this kind of air of like, oh, this is a business appointment that will kind of overcome a little bit of the fat phobia and make the person kind of see you as a person instead of just like, you know, as uh, number 472 in the obesity epidemic. One of the things you talk about and you encourage people to do is to interview their providers or their potential providers before working with them. I have found that to be remarkably difficult to get anybody to agree with. Finding a doctor who will sit down and do an interview and give you anything other than the kind of rote answers that then don't pan out in the actual care. How do you go about doing that successfully? Well, the biggest barrier to that is, first of all, like with specialists, Specialist or uh, surgical subspecialties and that kind of thing. That that's going to be a, that's going to be a hard one, right? Like if somebody has a very specific set of skills that you need and not, that can be actually something where you just you'll need to educate them, right? Think of the situation with uh, you know had this near placement that you know I'm like on my sixth, sixth surgery on it and I'm going to hospital for special surgery, which actually you know because gravity is a thing, sometimes fat people have orthopedic problems, right? And and also for many other reasons, but also, you know, there is a part of that. So there's lots of fat people there, right? And uh, so I feel like they don't have, it's actually an excellent hospital that had a great experience there. But the person that I'm going to is, this is, he's like the number one in the world who does this, right? Like he is the person, if you were getting a, a knee replacement, like a replacement of a replacement of a replacement, he is the person you want to go to. So he's not somebody that I'm going to interview because that's just the person I need and so we ha- start having conversations where I'd say like, yes, yeah, I know weight like this is. So I'll tell you what, how I feel about like what I do about fat and weight. And then he knows he can talk with me about it. I also brought up the subject first. So like that kind of thing where I'm actually doing more training of him because he's not to take care of me because he's he's the expert. Right. But for a primary care provider, the barrier is not going to be so much talking. They're not going to want to. It's an insurance problem. Right. Because the most you have for a visit is 20 minutes. Probably they just have 12. What some folks have done is just go in with the idea that they're getting a physical and say like, okay, you can actually bill me for the physical. That's fine. But mostly I just need to ask you questions right now. And how that's worked, especially with folks who are, for example, who need 
what what would be called GYN care, but maybe they don't identify as female, to have that conversation with your clothes still on and all that. Say like, okay, well, it's going to take me two visits. You can bill for two visits, but it is going to take me two visits. Actually say like, I understand you need to bill for this visit. Then everyone's kind of getting their needs met as far as the, you know, capitalism is getting its needs met too. So one of the things that I know in my own, seeking my own care and trying to find a primary care provider who will be at least adequate has been finding somebody who's okay with queer patients. And I've never found a doctor that said outright, yeah, I, ha- I have an issue treating queer patients. You know, th- what'll come up is they'll misgender me or, and then say, well, it shouldn't be a problem if you care about your care, just let it go and, and keep misgendering me. Or I had GYNs that say, yeah, I'm fine with lesbians, but why do you need a GYN? I mean, clearly that's not an issue for you. How do you go about finding and asking the right questions to find a provider to work with you? And you mean they're saying they don't understand why you want GYN care because you probably aren't going to get pregnant? Yeah, I was told, well, lesbians don't need GYN care. I mean, that's not an issue. I mean, that person apparently doesn't read anything. I'm like, I still have the parts. Like, they didn't fall out. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that, I swear, I say that, you know, I say like five times a day, whatever parts you still have, they have to check. That's just the way it works. I mean, please, you know, whoever that is, that person should, hasn't read any recent research, you know. But, I mean, that doesn't even make sense of like who gets like cervical cancer and nuns and lesbians, actually, you know, and it has to do with, with not having, with uh, not being pregnant, not having, basically not having spent a certain number of months pregnant. Yeah, that doesn't even make sense. The exact opposite is true. There's list. The, it's no longer, I think, actually, the acronym is no longer the Gay Lesbian Medical Association, but the DLMA has their own, keeps a list. And there's lists on, even, so, you know, states you wouldn't think like, oh, how many are there in Montana when there's only 12 people in Montana? There's even in Mon- Montana and that kind of thing. The other thing is that, like, for example, I have a friend, Ronnie Han, who's a doctor in Madison. She's seeing, uh, like, basically for a while, she was seeing, like, every trans woman in all of Wisconsin, you know. So so in order to, so for folks not to be driving four hours each way for what is essentially for a trans woman primary care, um, she started doing kind of coaching with other uh, care providers. So if you can't find somebody in your immediate area, right, if there's nobody on the list, if you can't find anyone from, you know, from a referral, even if you have like the name of somebody in, you know, a closer area who could either do the coaching or might just know somebody. And then there is the, so, you know, one of the things I talk about is, you know, that sometimes we have to, we're in situations where we have to teach our primary care providers, you know, and that's usually often related to geography, not always. That can be even just the process of like, okay, well, can I work with this person? I mean, if the person doesn't know the basic research or isn't willing to learn, then you're not going to be able to get anywhere with it. But there can be somebody who doesn't even need to know, like, you can just be like, well, actually, the research is blah, blah, blah. And if they're willing to learn, then that can and that can be a relationship, right? So, like, if you think about, like, online dating, you know, you're not actually looking for, my girlfriend lives in uh, rural western, uh, western New York, and she talked when she would be on OkCupid, she'd be like, okay, well, there's four people on OkCupid in the 200-mile radius around my house. Uh-huh. Uh, she's like, okay, so I'm not really looking for the perfect match. Of course, I end up being the perfect match, but uh, I'm not looking for the perfect match. I'm looking with somebody that I could go to a movie, right? And so that's, you're training a provider. So in that case, you're not actually looking for somebody who's like, let's say, has like, uh, you know, has read all the most recent research or has, you know, is on this the GML, GMLA list. 
but more that they are willing to learn. And that's a, a useful thing for a provider anyway. And that's the attitude. It's not even, you know, not even being really like intelligent or whatever. It's literally just attitude. You have, You've linked on your site and you've written about one of the best things that I've ever found, which is a list of nurse providers, nurse practitioners and stuff that people can see rather than going to a doctor every time. And I found, and I'm not sure what it is in the training or the culture, that nurses tend to be a little more open and understanding for patients who are queer or heavy or whatever. How do people go about, just so listeners can find nurses who can provide the, the care that they need um, in a lot of cases? And how do they go about finding that? And how do you go about kind of enlisting the nurses that you deal with in healthcare to help you deal with physicians that may be difficult? Nurse practitioners are, I mean, and the caveat, of course, there's so many um, MD providers that are amazing. Practitioners, it is a different model, right? Like nurse practitioners, all start out as nurses, right, as regular floor nurses, and then they do a bunch of additional education and a bunch of different book education and then also clinical education. So there's uh, women's health nurse practitioners. There's also psych nurse practitioners, which are fantastic, often are able to spend more time with you than a psychiatrist is and also can prescribe meds in, I think, all but a few states. And there's also, you know, a family nurse practitioners and adult nurse practitioners. One of the Best ways to see a nurse-run centers, which are people go to the National Nursing Centers Consortium. Those are all primary care clinics that are run by nurse practitioners. So meaning the person who is on, you know, who is the head is the uh, nurse practitioner or in some cases like a nurse, nurse PhD. And everyone works as a, nurse, as a nurse practitioner. And a lot of those places have, like, for example, the 11th Street Family Health Center in Philadelphia has Mm -hmm. fully integrated care where it's, you know, like when you go down the hallway and it's one room is primary care, the next room is a mental health provider. Next room is primary care, next room is mental health provider. And they also have things like a demonstration kitchen and a gym and that they just start having dental. So you can get taking everything care of and the idea is that they're treating the whole person. Mm -hmm. The model is a little bit different and I think that's part. And also the model is different and plus because like per hour, it costs less for them to, you know, exist, right? They're not paid as, as docs. Then they often, not always, but often can spend more time. So to do a, a 90 degree turn, on top of doing all the healthcare stuff, you also are a stand-up comic. Yeah. Normally, you're, you're successful in one round. Stand-up comics often don't have a very successful second job. And you've been successful in both. What got you into doing the, the comedy? Well, I've always, when I was a kid, I would walk home from the school bus, which was, you know, like a mile and a half in rural Wisconsin, and there were, all the cows were out, I guess, in pasture. Um, and I would be, you know, my sister would walk ahead, and I would still be there telling jokes to the cows. Like, it's just something that I, even as a kid, I wanted to be a stand-up comic. Even when I, before I really knew exactly what that was. I can remember actually staying up, and it's bananas. I mean, my parents used to let us watch Laugh-In. I can remember watching Laugh-In when I was in kindergarten, which, of course, it was like, Totally harmless then, because I had no idea even what they were talking about, right? I watch sometimes now, and I was like, this is aged interestingly. And my dad letting me stay up late to watch the Steve Martin com- um, comedy special. You know, it started at night, and I got to watch it. So that was something I always wanted. I didn't actually get on stage uh, for stand-up comedy until I was over 30. And that is because it just required a type of presence and a type of self-confidence that I didn't have. You have to be really bad at stand-up comedy before you get good. 
And the only yep. place to be really bad is in front of people, right? Because I can't tell a joke to my cat and be like, oh, well, you know, she laughed. It was hilarious or whatever. It has to be in front of people. So I wasn't actually able to do it until I was 30. And then I had this, you know, there's this idea that, oh, okay, the, the way you do stand-up comedy is you start doing an open mic, then you start doing opening acts, and then you start traveling the country to all these, like, little tiny comedy clubs in, you know, often in, not in big cities, but more like, you know, mid-sized towns and that kind of thing. And that becomes your life, and that's how you make a, a living, especially if you haven't, you know, have any significant TV exposure, which is usually what drives up the ability to command, like, certain kinds of money. And I started out doing that, and there was this horrible open mic in northeast philadelphia where this guy like they used to goad each other into telling you know rape jokes right at some point i got up and this is how i always started my set i need you all to do me a favor i need to ignore all the physical cues and believe that i'm an adult female and not a 12 year old boy and this guy on the first row yelled you're not a 12 year old boy you're a big fat ugly dyke and i said Oh, this was, you know, during the 90s, like just when the, like, kind of the worst of the pedophilia scam was, uh, not scam. Well, it is kind of a scam, but a scandal. I said, before I even thought about it, I said, Oh, you're just sad I'm not a 12 year old boy. You and the Catholic priest both. That guy chased me in the parking lot with a broken bottle afterwards. And as I was running away, I was like, Okay, I got to get like different material or better at running or different venues. And so I decided that probably different venues. And so I kind of modeled myself after that after like one of my ind- like my independent musician friends where you put out a CD every couple of years and you just perform at like small places and then you just build your fan plate based by traveling that way rather than focusing on comedy clubs where everything was you know it's like 1950s Alabama in comedy clubs even still yeah yeah as you've developed your your comedy sense and comedy's under a real change and development period from what i've noticed you know where it used to be a pretty straight line you know and very much favored straight white guys up on stage and rape jokes that take my wife, please jokes and all of that. We're hit. There's much more diversity coming out and a huge diversity in people who are getting specials and who are now headliners coming up. Where do you see comedy needing to develop? What would you like to see it develop next um, in its evolution? Well, I do think that it is, there's a lot, you know, just, just the success of of Nanette, of the special on Catholic Fun and Against Beast, just that by itself, right? Not only because she's queer, not only because she's masculine, a masculine-appearing queer woman, but also because there's a breadth to it, right? There's an act, it's not just like set up, set up, punch, set up, punch. And, you know, there's tons of, especially dudes online, like, oh, well, she's not even funny, you know? And not even saying like, oh, well, this isn't like, it is not stand up, it's storytelling, but rather saying something like, you know, this is shit. Yeah. But I, I do think that there, that that is kind of, that that's nothing new that like that comics are doing. I mean, you know, I get a little salty since I've, you know, been talking about the death of my two partners in my comedy act. Like since it happened, I get a little salty. Everyone's like, somebody's talking about serious things in comedy. How is that? So that I get a little salty about that. But, you know, queers have been doing that all along. I mean, the AIDS, the five gay men or the, Funny gay males that can completely out of the AIDS crisis. So I'm really I'm happy that more folks are getting more of a hearing, and I'm really loving that folks that were get kind of that there's a way that people talking about their experience, other folks are learning about their experiences through stand-up comedy. I think that's really valuable. Yeah, I would love it if there would be even kind of more of that. There's still this idea that, and it's 
Um, not as true, like in other places I've performed outside the U.S., but there's still, like, the setup punch, the setup punch, just so much more. There's so much more you can do beyond that, you know, like the five minutes or whatever. Yes, podcasts have come out as Netflix specials have, have kind of changed the way people listen to comedy. It's opening the door for people to do more subtle jokes, more serious work, because people are listening differently. Is that something that you've noticed in being out and performing, or is it specific sub-crowds that listen differently? I think that there is, for example, listening to a podcast, right, which is something every comic, when you come, as a queer, when you come out, you're issued X or Y, a cat and a therapist. As a comic, when you come out and you're issued a, you know, issued a podcast, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there is something about the intimacy of those kind of things, of listening on Spotify, on even people react differently. You know, I have CDs that are on Spotify and CDs that are on Sirius Satellite Radio, which Satellite Radio is what people listen to when they're in the car, right? Like, it is a very specific kind of thing. On Spotify, people listen to with headphones, and I think people react even differently when you're listening to he- on headphones than if you're listening in a car, right? There's it, there's a immediacy to it, and a kind of, especially if there can be real rawness, because also the venues, right? The venues control that. The venue is, is part of what makes it. I mean, one of the things that's been so great about having the kind of career that I've had is that, like, my girlfriend's like, uh, you know, like, I'll be like, oh, we walk past a skateboard ramp. And I'm like, oh, I performed on a skateboard ramp once, uh, which is true. Uh, or we walk past a ladder. I performed on a ladder once. You know, had, like, all these kind of experiences of, like, oh, performing at a gay sports bar in Tampa, you know, that had a lobster vending machine right next to the stage, you know. That the venue so much um, makes what you're able to do. You know, there's jokes that you can't really do in the sports bar, the gay sports bar with a lobster vending machine next to you that you can do on something that's going to end up in a CD that's like right in people's ears and nobody knows what they're laughing at. Right. So it's different. And it also means that you have to kind of have a breadth of work too, you know, that the same things don't work. And often the same things that work really, really well on stage. I've had shows where I was like, Oh my God, I just totally killed. And I, you know, I, I taped it, tape it anymore, you know, video my phone. And I watch it. I'm like, okay, because you're not really, there's not supposed to be more, uh, no, kids, kids, kids today. Nobody watches a video that's longer than two minutes on YouTube, right? Like it's, that's the, the research is less, two minutes and less. But I say like, oh, there's no two minutes of this that actually would work. And so it's kind of a, a different thing. It's like you're creating content for 30 different situations. So we're, we're towards the end of the interview. If people want to find you online, if they want to find your CDs, if they want to find your books, your site, where do they go to find you? Well, everything is referenced from kellydunham.com, which is K-E-L-L-I-G-U-N as a Nancy, H-A-M.com, like Lena Dunham, only Kelly. And then also I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all with that same exact name. Probably Facebook um, is my most active place, but I'm pretty active on Twitter. And do you have any upcoming shows that people should come out and see? For folks who are in New York, a couple things I'm, well, actually, so there's a couple things I'm really excited about. I have a show, I'm in the Rochester Fringe Festival in September 14th and 5th, so Rochester, New York. I have a show called Jesus Was No Sissy, which is about my relationship with Jesus' masculinity and what I learned at growing up born again about masculinity and about femininity. The, the name comes from my mom, who is really always upset about the way that Jesus is portrayed, that he's just not quite portrayed masculine enough in pictures. Jesus was no sissy, so that's where that comes from. No spoiler alerts. 
I kind of feel like Jesus probably was a sissy. So they're in all the best ways. And then so September 22nd, I'm having my 50th birthday show. It's called I'm Still Standing, kind of. The Actually, it's at the Brooklyn Reformed Church, um, which folks can find on my, probably the Facebook event is the best place to find. I have bringing in 12 different friends to help me celebrate 12 different performers, including Jess Tom, Michelle Carlo, and, and all the money that I raise there will go for student scholarships for students that can't get financial aid to go to school because of immigration status and all that. So I'm super excited about that. So that's September 22nd. And then September 14th, I'm in Rochester, New York. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Good luck with your upcoming shows and uh, an early happy birthday. Oh, well, thank you so much. And welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top with our segment, Because We Got High. We are here today with Heather Beth Woodford. She is a sex educator. She's part of, well, she founded and runs Sex Positive Sacramento. She's a social worker and knows all things groovy and sexy. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. I I don't know if I know all things, but I know some things. You know lots of things. <laughs> and because we like all people to eat on film and feel comfortable eating on film, today I, I did not cook. We were out at a slam very late last night. We have peanut butter cookies and chocolate frosted brownies, so please help yourself. That sounds... I guess what we want to start with today is you run Sex Positive Sacramento. You talk a lot about being sex positive. Does that just mean you want people to accept that you can be a slut? that's a good question sorry my mouth was full of peanut butter (laughs) well sex positivity means a few different things you know in in short sure it means that you're just positive in general about sexuality that you don't buy into the idea that sexuality is makes you bad or dirty that it's not inherently sinful or wrong or unhealthy there are kind of a few key components of sex positivity one is a huge one that um that i think needs to be mentioned like first and foremost is sexual justice so making sure that when we talk about sex and sexuality that it's inclusive that it that it's non-judgmental that it talks about sexuality is for everybody and anybody who wants to experience any aspect of it right so that goes for for people of any race, for people of disability, for people of any gender, for people of all ages that are able to consent, right? And even if you're under 18, you're still learning about and exploring your sexuality, right? So sexual justice, consent, and accurate education. So consent-based education, education that's medically accurate, and yeah, just generally feeling positive and non-judgmental. Those are kind of some of the basics of sex positivity, yeah. What led you to found Sex Positive Sacramento? How did that evolution happen for you? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, my gosh. When I was five. No. Um, <laughs> actually, um, I love that you're doing this this video and podcast project because podcasts are kind of what got me interested in human sexuality and kind of sparked my, well, I'd always been kind of curious just as a human who is a sexual human. Some folks aren't. Some people are asexual and that's okay too. I had just been always been curious about it. And then I had this job where I, but I felt like it was killing my soul. There were like a lot of fluorescent lights and a lot of cubicles and a lot of floppy disks and things like that. And so kind of the way that I survived that job was to listen to a lot of podcasts. And when I went back to grad school to become a social worker, I realized that, wow, there's like a real heavy connection here. There's a really important connection between social services, making sure people have access to things like housing and education and everything. And then that's all connected with sexuality, whether it's gender discrimination, whether it's um, treating people differently because of their you know, status as being pregnant, whether it's just 
people being treated differently because of their sexual activity. And so I think that sexuality and social work are super connected. And I wanted to bring more sex positivity to the Sacramento area. So shortly after I graduated from grad school, I started Sex Positive Sacramento. That's wonderful. You've been tweeting out a lot, and if you follow you on Instagram and all of that, about educating the next generation and educating kids. Kind of a two-part here. One, what is the current state of sex education in America? <laughs> and two, why, what's the best way for parents to approach talking to sex about their kids? Should it be, you should never have sex, you know, because... You know, if you grew up in our generation, it was sex will kill you. Right. Um, should it be go ahead? This is what Tinder is. And should your parents introduce you to porn? Like <laughs> what? Where in that vein should it go once you figure out what's going on at the school? Yeah, that's a great question. Wow. There's a lot of questions. OK, so first of all, what's the state of sex education in our country? Well, under the Obama administration, there have been some pretty awesome um, concerted efforts to promote medically accurate and more comprehensive sex education, which means inclusive around people of all different sexualities and sexual orientations and gender identity. I mean, it might not be like as progressive as what you're going to get if you live in San Francisco or something, right. but there have been some con a lot of concerted efforts to promote uh, medically accurate, easily accessible sex education. Unfortunately, in the United States, sex education, there's no actual federal policy that mandates sex education in any type of school setting or anywhere really. So it's tied to certain. And then when I did my, my thesis project, I studied the effects of sex positive sex education on later happiness in adult life. So I'll kind of explain that a little bit because people are like, what? Do you have a good sex life? And it's like, no, it's more about like, if you were taught sex education in a sex positive way, meaning if you were taught, you know, inclusiveness, if you were taught that there's nothing wrong or shameful about sexuality in your body, if you had a trusted adult to talk to about your body with any questions that you had, if you were given medically accurate information, which, by the way, those are all the things that actually reduce the rates of STIs and unintended pregnancies in the United States, which had been consistently happening. Like those things had been consistently declining during the implementation of the Obama administration's sex education plan. Unfortunately, that's been defunded recently by the Trump administration. So that's being just completely gutted. And we are going to see an increase in unintended pregnancies, in STIs. We're going to see an increase in bullying and we're going to see an increase in shaming people around sexuality because those things are just tied together. Like public, anybody who works in public health completely knows that. Oh, the other thing I was going to share is that one of the most important things, like the strongest connection that I found was not just if you had a sex positive sex education, there was a strong, you know, positive relationship to whether you were happier as an adult. But and that that did show a strong positive connection. But what actually showed a stronger connection is the connection between having a sex positive education and having an, a, trust, a trusted adult to talk to. So that is super key. And for social workers, which I'm a social worker, that is like that touches on a lot of our core values. It touches on dignity and worth of an individual. It touches on the importance of human relationships. You know, we always say that we want our clients to be to have self-determination. So when when you have somebody in your life who can provide that information for you in a trusted way, in a safe way, 
that's what's actually going to highly influence um, the success. That's a, we call that a protective factor against prob social problems. So to answer the second part of your question, the most important thing you can do is just meet your child where they're at. If they're old enough to ask a question, they're old enough to get an age-appropriate answer, right? So like, mommy, how come, um, you know, what? tell me what's, why, why does Uncle Fred have a husband and not a wife, right? So that's, there's an age-appropriate answer for that for a three-year-old, for a five-year-old, and for an 18-year-old. Actually, it's probably just the same in all of those because they love each other and they wanted to get married because they're right, gay, right? right? Or maybe they're bisexual or whatever. But there's an age-appropriate answer for any type of question, right? Like, where do babies come from? Or how can I be safer, right? Some great resources for that. Oh, my gosh, where should I even start? If your kids have questions about gender, you can check out Gender Spectrum, if your kids have questions about, actually, just go to my website, which is sexpositivesacramento.org, and click Please. on resources. I won't just name off a bunch of them, but I do, I do compile a bunch of resources there for parents and folks who work with youth. Do you work with youth to talk to families directly? Are these conversations you're engaging with as a social worker, um, you know, as part of your daily life? Um, I'm a parent. My mm -hmm. daughter recently had, mm -hmm. um, after a vacation, let us know that a cousin let her know that boys can get married to each other and that's wrong right and i was like no that's not wrong everybody can get married <laughs> and we just kind of we moved forward with it and didn't give a lot of examples she was like oh okay she felt more comfortable with me giving her that information yeah. than an eight-year-old you know what i mean exactly. <laughs> she didn't trust him so i get what you're saying but are are you really having conversations with parents and giving true examples for them and like kind of modeling that I find that without examples, if you're not part of those community groups and things, you really don't even know where to start. That's a great question. Um, actually, a lot of people think that like, you know, all sex educators work with kids and I work a lot um, largely with adults. Mm -hmm. um, and I most of the work that I do as a sex educator is I teach other adults. So I teach at um, Sacramento State. I teach a sexuality and social work class. Mm -hmm. And what I love about that is that that works with people who work with kids yep. that works with people who are going into and it's not even just social work majors i have nursing majors biology students i have all kinds of students that take this as an elective but i also have a bunch of different social workers who are going to work with any population so to answer your question more succinctly i don't work directly with a lot of kids and parents mm -hmm. although i have in the past i work with a lot of adults and my favorite thing to do is to train other social workers and other professionals on how to work with people around sexuality because i feel like that has a bigger ripple effect and thanks for being a parent I appreciate that. You're a stronger <laughs> so person than I am. No. <laughs> and you also brought up consent. So if you're a parent, if you work with kids, you're in the school system, how do you convey consent and how do you model consent for, for kids? Because you're not going to be asking them about having sex. We hope sex. I love this because you're... Um, can I talk about because uh -huh. they're off camera? Yes. Is it okay to mention them by name? Yes. See, there's a, there's a model of consent right there, right? Actually, <laughs> there's consent within consent. There's a great book called Ask by Kitty Stryker that came out within the past year. And it talks about the fact that consent culture is so much huger than just like, can I put my penis in your vagina now, right? It's like so many things. It's about checking in with people on an ongoing basis. What I was going to say about your person who's off camera, your esteemed our, our producer. Our sound man producer, yes, Sharon.
Sharon is a friend of mine, and every time, every, but every time I see him, just because I, I don't know, I was kind of getting to know him a little bit more. I was like, "Hey, are you huggable today?" Right? I say that to most people. I'm like, "Are you huggable?" Right? Because we we make these assumptions. Finally, actually, today, just before we recorded this, he was just like, "I need you to know, every time you see me, you can hug me. We don't need to. We don't need to do this anymore. You just, I'm huggable." And I'm like, "All right, all right, all right." So when we know each other in that way now, right? Because we've well, we know each other, I don't know, a few years. But things like that, just like checking in with people, that's a great way to model things, right? Because physical touch, emotional interactions, great ways to to start modeling consent for kiddos and like just with anything, just like with you asked like what with like with what you asked earlier about, you know, working with kids, it's all about age appropriateness, right? So teaching kids to ask before they touch other kids, saying, Is this okay? Right. That can help kind of model different forms of consent. Kitty Striker's book talks about that like in all different facets, in different aspects of life which i really like it just because somebody doesn't say no doesn't mean it's a yes so teaching people to really pay attention to enthusiasm and positive response versus just not just a lack of negative response does that make sense to read the body language of everything that's happening i think for me it started when our daughter was about two other parents would love oh go hug them give such and such a kiss and i'm like you ask first what if that child didn't want to kiss and you know they get stiff armed by a little boy and feelings hurt all of those things happen so i think that's really really since you do health education for adults one of the things i had asked you about before we came on is are there special needs for bigger people or are there differences or can we all just use the same thing yeah that's a good question so i'll I'll just like i'll just back up just little bit not to just talk about myself but also to share a resource and to say that i got my sex educator training at a place called sfissy which stands for san francisco sex information anybody and everybody can check them out and use them as a resource sfsi.org i got my sex educator training through them and even and i did that about five years ago and so even some of the information that i got from that training is a little bit outdated now so i was doing a little bit of extra research this morning and i have my fancy thing so you might have heard some things in the media about like Plan B or hormonal birth control is less effective for folks who are larger bodied. And that seems to be somewhat true, but also somewhat inconclusive. And really the reasoning behind that is that there haven't been that many studies for folks um, who are larger bodied fat chicks or however you want to say it, right? Like lots of different words. So um, it it seems to be that like the hormonal forms of birth control would be less likely to, to have to be effective, but then I was reading about a meta study, which for bigger bodied folks who have uteruses, right? Because I know it's fat chicks on top, but also mm-hmm. I have to say not everybody who has a uterus is a chick, right? Yeah. And vice versa. Not all chicks have uterus. The most comprehensive study that I found was a meta study, which is which is kind of like if you look at all these different little studies, like say you have like a bunch of little small Lego buildings and you're like, oh, look, here's a school. Oh, look, here's a church. Don't worry. It's rainbow. Rainbow Legos. Good. Oh, look, here's a post office, right? And then you're like, cool, these are interesting individually. And then you put them together on the little green Lego board and you can look at them as a whole town. Anyway, so the meta study looked at 17 different studies with, I think, about 63,000 participants. It actually kind of found that the results are inconclusive. Overall, the meta study found. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be concerned or ask your doctor, or talk to people who are like more up on the data and the research. But it just means that some forms of hormonal birth control may be less effective. I think it's, I'm going to mispronounce this word because I'm more on the social and cultural side of sexuality than the medical side. Levinagestrel, which is in plan B and some IUDs, that may be less effective for folks over a certain BMI. And I actually don't remember exactly what the BMI is. But really the point is talk to your doctor or your healthcare professional. And I also realize that that's not necessarily a simple statement because it's like fat phobia. But ideally, ideally, hopefully you have a relationship with a healthcare provider that you feel comfortable with. 
If not, you can check out, you can, you know, you can call Sfissy's hotline or maybe you can check out Planned Parenthood and they might have more information for you. So we have five standard questions we, we pretty much ask everybody. You don't have to be a smoker to answer these questions, but since the segment is because I got high and we just serve food. The first question I have Wait, to are ask. Are these special cookies? I did not nope, they're not that special. They're okay, I was like, nope. I did not consent to that. Nope, nope, that did not happen. We're not smoking the ganja. That did not happen today. Okay. So my first question is, what's something you're grateful for? Ooh, you know what's really funny that I discovered recently? This will be like my first time admitting this publicly because it's not something I've really ever necessarily been involved with. But um, speaking of uteruses and speaking of getting high, I guess it is that special time of month where my uterus is like angry. I'm like, I know we're going to bleed, but do you need to throw a fit about it for three days in advance? <laughs> could we just, could we just, could we? And then I recently discovered CBD gummies and those are delicious and wonderful and they make your ouchies go away. And I'm very excited about that. So sure, I'm grateful for CBD gummies today. They actually make other feminine hygiene products with CBD what? in them and tummy C- stuff. It's oh, I'm new to all the things. Please CBD tell me. lube, and you can get it at our Sacramento favorite sex shop. Is um, Autonomous Love carries it. Yes, it has CBD based lube, and you use it for sex. It increases the blood flow and relaxes everything, and it fights cramps. I need that. Okay, it's just the CBD, though, not the THC, right? It's not right? the THC. It's My just body the does CBD. not enjoy that. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. But yes, and I, I'll put a plug in for our, our favorite sex shop in Sacramento, Autonomous, Autonomous Love. Love. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Like about sex or life Anything. or... Okay. No, no. Sorry, no, I don't no. know. <laughs> Some people don't have one. That's okay. If you have good friends giving you good advice, that's super solid. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> if I think of something, I'm not trying to say that I'm sure that I've gotten like a thousand bad pieces of advice. Maybe I just block it out or something. If I think of it, can I email you? <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Okay. So what's your favorite go-to munchie? Snack Ooh. food. What do yeah. you like? My friend likes to ask me, do you like sweet or salty? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, recently I've been into oh I'll tell you what I've been into recently this is like so fucking delicious I've been really into <laughs> I've been really into these butter toffee peanuts mm-hmm. from Safeway and I was like reading the ingredients and I like the fact that they, they exist in order of like volume of ingredient right and so you'd think that peanuts would be first on the list but no it was very simple it was like sugar <laughs> peanuts butter salt I was just like and they're really good. Oh, so. <laughs> What's something everyone should try once in their life? I think vibrators. I think everybody should try vibrators. Um, because <laughs> if you, it doesn't matter if you have a clitoris, a vagina, an anus, a penis, balls, whatever you got. Or anything in between, right? Because intersex people exist as well. Intersex people are people whose genitalia do not look like your normative or standard penis or vagina, right? But we, most of us, the vast, vast, vast majority of us have a phallus, which is a a little, uh, not little, sometimes little, sometimes big place on our body, either clitoris or the head of a penis, right? That has so many nerve endings in it. Many of us have either a G-spot, which is sort of the back of the internal part of our clitoral structure. Many of us have a P-spot, which is a prostate, right? You can access that from outside or inside. It just feels good, right? Why did God or whoever you believe in give you all those nerve endings if they didn't want you to enjoy them? And it, your partner doesn't have to be intimidated by it. Like it's not, nope, don't worry about it. Nobody has vibrating fingers or tongue. So it's okay. You can incorporate it into sex. You can play with it solo, but I do believe everybody should try vibrators. Do you have a favorite one? 
I like the leaf. The leaf is really cool. Um, it kind of looks like this, and it's got these two like little leaves on it that you can kind of like either expand or contract, and then you can put one part inside, one part outside. Yeah, it's super fun. We all do this. Leaf. It's really fun. <laughs> That's my personal favorite. A lot of people like the Hitachi Magic Wand. That shit is like too intense for me. I'm like, I do not need to ride a rocket to Mars. <laughs> I just need to get off. Thanks. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Hi, Mom. My mom does not have the internet. <laughs> <laughs> My mom's going to be on this. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> if people want to find you, find out more about yeah. you, tell us all the things. Where, all we, where the do we things. go? Yes. Um, sexpositivesacramento.org is really kind of the home of where to find me on the internet. You can follow us on Facebook. <laughs> you can follow Sex Positive um, Sacramento on Facebook. You can follow the Sex Positive Social Worker, which is sort of like my brand. Um, and you'll see like the little promo photo of me for this show going like, and then it'll be like my same promo photo where I'm like, that's like the one time in the past five years that I wore lipstick. It was great. Find us on Facebook. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for the information. And um, we're going to go eat a little more. Can I? Okay. Did I step on your thing? No, no, no. Go for it. Can I, can I just share one thing just because I love to like, I'm so excited about this. I want to talk about my dress. Can I talk about my dress? Please. We, we love talking about fashion. Okay. I, I hear that there's a word called fashion, and I don't think that I necessarily get to embody that, unfortunately. But but I hear, I like that word fashion. But You just realized what's on it, didn't you? I saw it earlier, but I just thought it was a fun pattern. It is a fun pattern. Yeah. And it's vulvas. <laughs> Vulva. So... I can I tell a little story. Do we have time for this? Yeah, please do. Edit it into your bloopers if you need to. Yes, these are all multicolored vulva. The story is that I was on this show called The Latest Show, which is a Sacramento area, like tonight show type of show. And I was doing my, I do a consent demonstration with puppets about like what consent looks like. And then I said something about, I was wearing something fun, like my condom earrings and some dress. And I was like, I would like to have a vulva dress. That would be fantastic. Well, afterwards, someone came up to me from the audience. I don't, I think she'll be okay if I call her out on this. Allie Yada came up to me and hi, she, Allie. hi, Allie. And she was like, dude, my sister is a seamstress and like a clothing designer and she could totally make you a vulva dress. And I was just like, I need that in my life. Yeah. And then weirdly enough, I just happened to be on like a road trip to Long Beach last year and her sister lived in Long Beach. So I hooked up with Elizabeth Yada. Hi, Elizabeth of Miss Alphabet Clothing. And she took my measurements and made me a custom dress. I didn't even get a custom dress when I got married, y'all. This is how important <laughs> vulvas are to me in my life. So that's all I just want to talk about this dress. Where did the print come from? Is this something you found? Did she find this? I'm curious. How we, did you procure vulva fabric? Well, so this, I think, is also kind of like handmade or like, a hand, you know, designed by an independent mm -hmm. designer. I want to say it was like Spoonflower or one of those websites where you can go to find fabric. And um, it has pockets <gasps> because Yay! all women's clothing should have fucking pockets. pockets okay. That's all. It has big um, pockets, too. Yes, it like, does. She, like, measured around, like, she's like, how, what is your height? How big are your hands? And I was like, I need all the things. It fits my gigantor phone in it. It's fantastic. So, um, so yeah, all props to Miss Elizabeth Yeda at Miss Alphabet Clothing for making me a vulva dress and making my whole life happy. Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> that has been Fat Chicks on Top because I got high. Woo!
This has been a Fat Chicks on Top production with your hosts, Auntie Vice and Gentlemen. Thank you to our sound engineers, Sharon Smith and David Manga, for our awesome music. For all things Fat Chicks, we're on every social media platform. For full interviews and explicit content, please subscribe to our Patreon.